Well, good morning. Happy New Year to you. Would you just bow and pray with me? And uh, we'll ask the Lord to help us as we... We're going to start a new book this morning. Do you remember that? Anybody know where we're going? Know where we are this morning? Ecclesiastes, that's right. Some of you are looking forward to it. Some of you stayed home. Uh, so let's, let's pray for all of us. Father, we are uh, very happy to be here in your house and in your presence. And we rejoice, Lord, too, that your presence does not just abide here in this place, but wherever we are, for you reside within us. Your Holy Spirit indwells those who have placed faith in you. Father, this morning I'm thankful for a new year. And I appreciate the perspective that Pastor Keith put in front of us just a moment ago. This could be the year. And we want to live our lives as people who really truly long for your return. Who long for your kingdom to be established. Because we can become so distracted in our wishes and wants and our carnal desires and the things of this earth. And we can get caught up in the minutiae of the day to day. And miss the fact that there is a transcendent God. Who has made us for just but a season to inhabit this earth but for an eternity to be in relationship with Him. So Lord, we do long for the return of Jesus Christ so that we as the bride of Christ might be reunited fully in His presence, rejoicing and praising Him for all eternity. But for now, we're here. And so we encourage each other with these songs, with these hopes, and with the words of Scripture that you have left for us. And Father, we look to your Holy Spirit, who is our guide and our comfort in all matters of life, and we ask him to be our teacher now. We open our lives to you to be taught. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, We're starting this off. Uh, this morning. I don't know how long we'll be in the book. Uh, it's a very difficult book to sort of map out and plan out. Uh, and uh, I was telling somebody else this morning, I almost have the sense or the feeling that when we get to the end of the book, I may well want to start it all over again to try to get it even a little bit better or a little more, more accurate to what I think it's saying. I'll try not to do that to you. In the late 70s, as a 16-year-old, he co-founded a company based out of his parents' garage, and he pioneered the way in personal computing. Some of you may already know who I'm talking about. He became a leader in technology and innovation and creativity and marketing. Um, However, in the mid-80s, he was fired from his own company due to an internal power struggle. That same year, he started another personal computing company called NEXT on which, believe it or not, the World Wide Web was actually created by Tim Berners-Lee. In 1986, he went on to purchase a faltering graphics company uh, from Lucasfilm that would later become Pixar and develop 11 blockbuster animated movies over the next 15 years. Hopefully most of you are up to speed now. You think, you think you know who I'm talking about here. In 1995, 
As the CEO of Pixar, he became the leading shareholder of Disney, owning over 7% of the company. In 1996, a merger brought him back to the company he founded in his parents' garage 20 years prior, and he then helped the company he had founded return to profitability, which was his goal, coming back to it. In 2010, Forbes reported him to be the 42nd richest American with a net worth of $8.3 billion. Although that year he only earned $1 uh, as the CEO of Apple. Uh, And the man I'm referring to, of course, is Steve Jobs. You heard of him? And yet for all of his brilliance and his wealth and his creativity and the innovation that he pioneered, Steve Jobs passed away October 5th of 2011 at the age of 56 due to complications from pancreatic cancer. And so with as much acclaim and and accomplishments and and wealth and all that this man uh, did in his lifetime, And as much as his life and his creativity touches ours, all of this still begs the question for me, did he live life well? Did he live life well? Uh, And I'm not going to try to answer that question for Steve Jobs. I'm not in a perspective to make that determination on his life. But the shortness of his life, the brevity of it, uh, and the significance of it... um, kind of catches all of us up short, I think. And we are all forced to recognize that death is the eternal equalizer. And uh, for Steve Jobs, with all that he uh, was able to do and create in this life and all the wealth he was able to make, he was not able to cheat death, nor was he able to take any of his wealth or his possessions with him. And so Steve Jobs' death causes me to reflect on life. And to ask the question, how are we to live life well? How are we to live life well? And that kind of questioning takes us right to the book of Ecclesiastes. And and I'll tell you at the outset, Ecclesiastes is my favorite book in the entire scriptures. Uh, I don't know how the rest of you feel about it. Uh, I know some people don't particularly care for it. They find it to be a downer or somewhat discouraging or just confusing. And I, and I actually find that some people who have gone through deep waters in life and lots of difficulty tend to find it uh, very helpful. Um, and I myself have not gone through such deep waters, but I tend to just love the book uh, as I find it. I actually believe it to be an incredibly encouraging book. Uh, I think it is an honest assessment of life as we find it. Uh, and that's where the title of this series comes from, Ecclesiastes. That's just the way it is. And you're going to hear that phrase a whole bunch through this series. You're going to get tired of it and later on in life when someone asks you, what do you think Ecclesiastes is all about? You're probably going to respond, it's about life. That's just the way it is. Uh, I think Ecclesiastes is about life as we find it. Life on the human plane. Life the way it really is. Just a brutally honest look uh, at life. I think, unfortunately, it has become a very misunderstood book. In fact, I would go as far as to say that it may be the most misunderstood book in the entire scriptures. Um, 
Again, I don't think it's negative. I think it's a positive book about living life. And I think overall it makes the affirmation that life, with all of its enigmas and mysteries and difficulties, life is a gift from God. And it's to be enjoyed. And I think that's the, uh, the sort of the bullet of the book. I think that's the big point that we're, we are left, or that we co- need to come to with it. It deals honestly with life on the human plane, life as we find it. Uh, in your bulletin this morning, you have a handout, and it's probably going to be helpful for you as we go through, particularly this morning. Whenever we start a new series, we start a new book, we need to do our homework, and we need to understand who was the book, and what was the occasion uh, that it was written to, what's the structure, what's the point, and, and try to take a big picture look at it first before we get real myopic and dive into it verse by verse. We want to do our homework, and so we're going to do a bit of that this morning before we tackle the first 11 verses. And so the first thing we need to ask ourselves is, who is the author of the book? And unfortunately, the book does not name uh, its author. Uh, instead, we're given this, this title here, uh, Koaleth. Uh, which is the Hebrew word. It's translated for us teacher, or in some translations it might be preacher. Uh, We see right here in verse 1, the words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Uh, And so again, that particular phrase is more of a title. Uh, It means preacher or teacher or sage. It's that kind of a word. Uh, And I believe that it is actually written by King Solomon. And I believe that's just the title that he's given to himself as he basically tackles this project of looking at giving an honest look at life as we find it. Um, I'll tell you why, just to give you a little bit of proof here on why I think it's, it's King Solomon. First of all, right there in the first verse, uh, we have two pretty good clues, don't we? I mean, right off the bat, he identifies himself as a son of David. Now, you and I, have we've talked about that here recently as we've looked at the life of Christ. Son could refer to sort of anyone in the lineage of David, uh, but here I do think he's, it's, he's just claiming to be actually his son. Then secondly, he goes on to say that he's a king in Jerusalem. And you can see by just this list of things as it follows out, we, we learn about this particular author here, uh, that they were wiser than any king that ruled before him. We learn that in in, uh, chapter 1, verse 16. And then as we go on in chapter 2, we see this particular author, the person who is speaking to us, the teacher, as one who is the builder of great projects. We see him as one who had numerous slaves. We see him as one who had incomparable herds of sheep and cattle. Uh, We see him as one who had great wealth, one of the richest to ever live. And we also see him as one in chapter 2 there who had a large harem. And while not all of these descriptions are honorable of this particular person, all of these descriptions are an accurate um, description of King Solomon. And if you want to just do a little bit of biographical reading on Solomon's life to see if if what I'm suggesting uh, bears out to be true, I'd encourage you to look at the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings. First Kings or uh, the first nine chapters of Second Chronicles. And look at King Solomon's life and compare that with some of these early chapters of the book and see if they jive. I think that they do. And so the conclusion that I've come to and that I'm going to represent through the series is that the author is King Solomon. Um, the nature of the book. Um, I think it's basically semi-autobiographical. I think it is someone who is, in a sense, writing their memoirs. This is my life. These are my experiences. 
This is what I've encountered. This is what I take away from it. This is what I'm passing on to you. I recently picked up um, the autobiography of Steve Jobs, and uh, I'm reading through that uh, right now. That's something I want to get through this year. Uh, I think the book of Ecclesiastes is a similar kind of thing. This is my, my life, and this is life as I find it. Again, I think one of the things that, that, um, that Solomon does here too that's important to understand is he's not telling us to do everything that he did. He is telling us to learn from everything that he did. And there will be some negative lessons and some positive lessons as well. One of the things that I, um, I think actually makes the book of Ecclesiastes so controversial is one of the things that I appreciate about it the most. And that is its honesty. It is a brutally honest book. You have friends like this? Or do you choose not to have friends who are honest? You know what I mean? Sometimes honest people are rough to be around. Because if you ask them what they think of what you're wearing, they're going to tell you. They're going to tell you exactly what they think. Uh, you don't go fishing for compliments from honest people, do you? We keep them at arm's distance. Well, I think, I think Solomon is one of these kinds of people. He's brutally honest. And so he speaks about despair and anger and frustration, and disappointment, and monotony, and all of these things. And he acknowledges them. He says, this is the way I find life. He doesn't just talk about a saccharine, sweet kind of religious experience. He says, life stinks sometimes. It's this way. It's just the way it is. It's the way we find it. And yet, I think what's so beautiful about the book is he goes on to not just leave us in that, but then say, but here's some coaching for how to make the most of it as we find life on the human plane. There's some key phrases in the book that we really have got to understand in order for it to make sense uh, to us. And, and one of them that we'll run into quite a lot is life under the sun. You see that there in your, your handout. And we've just absolutely got to come to an understanding of what he means by this particular phrase. A common interpretation of this, which I totally reject, but a common interpretation of this is, this is life without God. And I don't think that's what he is is doing at all. Uh, I think he means not life apart from God, but rather life on the human plane. Day-to-day life. Real, actual, living life the way we find it, real human experiences, life with all of its vagaries, real life. I think that's what he's talking about. Some people do real life with God, and some people do real life without God. I don't think that's his point. His point with uh, life under the sun is just life on the human plane. I'm trying to capture that with my background slide here. Here you see somebody looking up into the heavens and seeing rays of light touch the ground. And yet in between those rays of light are darkness too. And I think that's the way life is. As we examine it, as we look at it, as we go through it, there are times when we seem to feel very clear about what God is doing. God's presence seems to be in this. His movement seems to be in this. We see God's fingerprint on something in these rays of light. And then just a few feet further, we see darkness. We see contrast. We see something unexplainable. And we don't know what to make of that. That's just life on the human plane. 
Life as it is, just the way it is. And I think that's what he's getting at with this phrase, life under the sun. Um, the second word that I would, uh, that we need to kind of pay a little bit of attention to here is the word havel. Uh, and it's, it's something that appears in Ecclesiastes more than 30 times. It's all over this book. And it's right at the beginning and it's right at the end. Uh, Hebel is one of the most uh, debated words in probably all of Scripture in terms of its actual meaning because it's used so much in Ecclesiastes and not as much throughout the rest of the book, but it's such a key to understanding Ecclesiastes. Uh, and I, I think it is unfortunately translated in the NIV as meaningless. I think it's a very uh, poor translation. Uh, I think you may have, if you have a New American Standard, you may have um, vanity. And sometimes I think these mistranslations are not so much that the, uh, that the, the word scholars got it wrong so much, but language is a dynamic thing, isn't it? A, a word that means something to us today, 50 years ago, maybe didn't mean quite the same thing. And so as language moves for us, sometimes uh, we have to continue to look at Scripture and make sure that what it originally was intended to say, it still says today. Uh, and so I don't think meaningless is a very good translation of it. As I've uh, looked particularly at Bruce Waltke, who is a Hebrew scholar that I really respect an awful lot, he's come to the conclusion that maybe the best translation is vaporous. Vaporous. Uh, and in fact, as you look throughout the scriptures, we see Habel used most commonly to refer to wind or breath, these kinds of things, something that is here and then gone. It's, it's fleeting. Uh, it doesn't have substance. Uh, it doesn't have permanence or significance. It's just kind of here and gone, like a vapor. And that's a better understanding of the word. As Alaskans, I think we have a fantastic picture of this in the aurora. We, we look up and we see... I see a hint of something up there. Is, is that the northern lights? And then all of a sudden, boom, it's on, like someone flipped the switch. And it's electric, and it's moving. And you can't grab it or harness it or control it or make it do anything. It does what it wants. It does it at its own whim. And it's here in all of its intensity and beauty. And then, where did it go? It's gone. And I think that's a very good picture at the word of the word habel, which Solomon, I think, is trying to capture sort of this aspect of life. That it isn't, it's not that it's worthless, but it's fleeting, it's transitory, it's mysterious, it's elusive. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his work, The Message, has translated it smoke. And so for him, the beginning verses says, smoke, smoke, it's all smoke. I think that's pretty decent, too. Um, the theme and the purpose of the book overall, I, I, I ran across this uh, quote by Ronald Allen, which I've included in your handout. And I think it may be the best like single-sentence summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. He says this, No, life is not... Actually, it's two sentences, sorry. Two sentences. No, life is not meaningless. Ecclesiastes affirms life as a gift from God, as God's gift for us to seize and enjoy before it all too quickly passes. And I think that's a very good summation of, of sort of the book. Uh, the organization of it. Man, you want to talk about a challenge. Try to, try to come up with an organizational chart of Ecclesiastes. The best thing I could say about it is it's written in chunks. 
Uh, now, where those chunks begin and end uh, is pretty tough, I think. Uh, but J.I. Packer has come up with a suggestion that I think is pretty good, and so I'll, I'll give it to you guys for your consideration. He basically says that, that uh, Ecclesiastes is a sermon, a single sermon, and that it has an introductory statement and an overarching point, vaporous, vaporous, all is vaporous. And he sees that right at the beginning in verse 1-1. And then as you look towards the end of the book in 12-8, there it is again. There's the conclusion. And any good rhetorical teacher or speaker will tell you, you start with an attention-getting device, right? Then you teach and you go through your message. And then you return to your attention-getting device. And here we find all the way back in the time of the writing of Ecclesiastes this very kind of thing. And so he basically sees that as the primary point. And then he sees... Ten chapters, basically, the preacher, the teacher, going through his point, kind of running it through the grid of our lives, through our work, through our relationships, through our perspective on things, through the natural world, uh, through the things that we observe, just showing his point again and again and again. And then, he doesn't just leave us to observe this phenomenon, but at the very end, uh, chapter 11 uh, and chapter 12 brings us to the conclusion of the matter. Now I have to tell you, one of the biggest challenges for me in preaching through this book uh, is that a lot of the takeaway, a lot of the encouragement, a lot of the really, really good gems are kind of towards the end. And, and for a long time, Solomon just observes and acknowledges these things that we all experience in life. But the big challenge for me as someone who's going to take this on as a series is not just to describe the water that we're all drowning in week to week, but to bring some hope on a weekly basis. And so that's kind of the challenge that's up, for, uh, up to me here. Uh, and this morning we're just taking on the first 11 verses. Um, that's kind of a big picture look, so let's dive in. And we'll move pretty quickly through the 11 verses that we have this morning. But the first point that I think is drawn out in these first seven verses is this. Life is fleeting. Vaporous, vaporous. Or as it says here in the NIV, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all of his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. And so I want to try to draw out two, two things that I think he shows us here in these first few verses about the fleeting nature of life. First of all, I think he shows us that it is insubstantial in just these uh, in verses 2 and 3. Again, we talked about his use of the word habel, vaporous. And when we hear that word, I want you to think of the aurora or smoke or something like that. It's just it's here and then it's gone. Can't grab it, can't harness it, can't control it, can't manipulate it. And it's not it's not lasting, it's not here forever. It's here and then it's gone. But the other thing that he does, not, not only just to communicate sort of this transitory or elusive nature of life, he uses uh, repetition here very, very uh, strategically. Where he says, meaningless, meaningless, or vapor, uh, vaporous, vaporous. And we see this in Scripture a lot. 
Uh, we'll see, for example, holy of holies, servant of servants, song of songs, king of kings. Uh, we use it in our everyday language. This person is the coach's coach or the pastor's pastor. I mean, we, we use it in our everyday speech as well. And so basically what's, what's communicated here is wisp of a vapor, puff of a wind. He's, he's communicating the most transitory of most transitory. That's the way that life is. It's just so short. It's just so fast. We have uh, three children. Uh, my son Aiden is nine, Eleanor is six, and Gus is three. And I feel like we just left the hospital with Aiden. And I love spending time with these kids, and we have just the, the, we have great times, especially coming off, off the holidays. But we also have those days where you're about ready to pull your hair out, obviously. <laughs> and you're just thinking, I can't do this anymore. I'm at the end of my rope. And as I talk to many of you about what it's like to raise kids, uh, inevitably what I hear, you guys shake your heads and you look at me and you say, it goes so fast. Is it not? When you're in it, it's hard. It goes on and on. It's repetitive. It can be annoying. It's challenging. It brings you to the end of yourself. And then someone has the gall to tell you, it goes so fast. (laughs) And I believe you. I believe you. Because I'm already starting to experience that our firstborn is going to be 10. And that the influential years that we have with him are largely behind us. That we're over halfway in terms of parenting him in our house. That's startling. That's fast. And that's the way life is. Vaporous, vaporous. It's transitory. It's, it's fast. It goes quick. Just a puff of a wind, wisp of a vapor. And like any good teacher, Solomon doesn't just leave this in sort of words, but then he, he wants to show us some pictures. And so the examples that he tends to bring forward is he goes to our labor and he goes to the things that we set our hands to do and the way that we work. And he asks sort of the rhetorical question here in verse 3, what does man gain from all of his labor at which he toils under the sun? What, is, what does he gain? And so he basically uses this Hebrew word here, yatron, which is translated profit or gain. It's used ten times uh, actually in the book and then nowhere else in the Old Testament. But it's basically a business term. It's, what does the profit and loss statement say at the end of the quarter? What did you make? What did you get? What were this year's earnings? What's your tax liability? It's this kind of a thing. What's left over? And he's asking this rhetorical question to just show us. We go through life, we, we labor, we toil, we strive, and at the end, what do we have to show for it? Uh, our family has this uh, kind of a new tradition here. It's just a couple years old. But one of the things that we do to connect with my, my parents down in San Diego is every Christmas, we are getting a puzzle and right after sort of Christmas morning is over, then the challenge begins. They get the same puzzle that we have, and uh, we open it up, and then it's a race to see who can complete it first. Uh, just a little picture into the competitive nature of our, my family. And so uh, last year's puzzle was Rockefeller Center. 
it was about 500 pieces. This year's puzzle, Rockefeller Center, 1,000 pieces. Next year's puzzle will not be Rockefeller Center. It could be cats for all I care. And you know what I'm saying when I say that. We worked on this thing day and day, I mean, just day after day after day. A bunch of people are working on it. My poor mother is there doing it herself at home, and I'm having the sense all along she's ahead of us, even though there's like six of us working on it. We kept dropping pieces on the ground and the dogs eating them, and so we had this pile of chewed pieces that we're not really sure where they go, and we think we've rescued all of them, but there's a couple blanks where that should be obvious. Anyways, we're moving... <laughs> We're working at this thing, and we're trying to, trying to get it done. And then after uh, a, f- you know, a few days, we traveled out of town for the holidays, for, um, for New Year's. We came back, and we had company coming over for dinner. And you know what? It was time to put the puzzle away. And we hadn't finished it yet, which is still gnawing away at me. And so we took the pieces and crumpled them up and put them in the box and put it in the closet and sent a text to my mom. We surrender. <laughs> <laughs> And she texted me back last, uh, last night or the night before and said, I finished. Your dad put in about five pieces, and um, next year's puzzle will be 500 pieces or less. <laughs> uh, but you know what? That puzzle's fate is the same fate for you and I. At the end of our life, it will feel unfinished. Whatever remains of us will be gathered up and put in a box and tucked away. And all of our toil will have done what? What will it have gained for us? Whatever is left over will be passed on to whomever in our family took the piece of tape with their name on it and put it on the bottom of that particular item. That's what will be left over. It will be distributed. And that is life. It is insubstantial. It is here today and gone tomorrow. It's fleeting. The second aspect of life that he draws out is that life is cyclical. Look at verse 4. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. And so here Solomon looks not only to these cycles in our personal lives, but he looks at the cycles of nature. And he examines life in contrast to these cycles of nature. And it makes a very, very powerful point. Because here he's saying, nature seems to have this permanent monotony of cycles to it. And yet we're here in this fleeting flash that's just here and then gone. And so he basically juxtaposes these two truths that he can observe, the the temporariness of our lives and the lack of gain and significance of it. Wisp wisp of a wind, puff of a wind, here here and gone. And he contrasts that with this seemingly ongoing, monotonous cycle of the natural world. And it causes him to be very cynical about his sort of his own life. And as we examine our lives, we find this to be true, don't we? We always talk about, why do, why do postal workers, why are they the ones that always sort of lose it and go postal as the expression, as the expression goes? And, and if you heard this before, the explanation is typically because the mail never stops. 
It keeps coming. It's never delivered. It's just delivered for today. I look at that and I think, that's my life. And that's your life. I'm going to finish preaching this message, this service, and I'm going to have one more. And then guess what? I'm going to start over on Monday. The next message is coming. Constantly. That's just the pastor's life. And it's the same in your life. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you, you go through a very similar cycle, don't you? You get up, you wrestle with the kids to try to get them to school. Uh, you referee sort of the sibling conflicts in the afternoon. You try to keep order in the home and prepare a meal for the family. You wash dishes at the end of it, hopefully with some help from the kids or your husband. You get everything put away. You get the kids put back in bed with a little bit of fight. You sit down and take a breath, and guess what? You go to bed and you start it all over. There's a cycle to your life. Uh, Dad, same thing. You get up, you go to work, you try to beat the train, you deal with the customers and their problems, and they're the same problems they had before. And until management recognizes these problems, you're going to sit there and continue to be the ear that gets bent while other people come and complain to you. You try to prepare for the annual inspection. It's going to be the same thing as last year. You stay late to try to resolve a few issues, to just try to keep things manageable. You try home, drive home, try to get there while the meal is still hot, give a little bit of help to your wife, play with the kids, and guess what? You get up and start it all over again. There is this cyclical nature to our work and to whatever we look at in the natural world around us. And as Alaskans, we may be uh, very well attuned to this as well. We look outside and we know where we are. We're halfway through winter. And we're on the upswing, and we're getting the daylight back. It's just this year's cycle. And so, this is what Solomon observes. Life is fleeting. It's insubstantial, and it's cyclical, both in our personal lives and in the natural world. And then he goes on to say, this is really, really uh, encouraging stuff so far, isn't it? Life's disappointing. Verse 8, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear of hearing. And effectively what he communicates to us here in verse 8 is that we are not satisfied. Somebody could cue Mick Jagger at this point. I can't get no satisfaction, right? Uh, You and I know this to be true. We're coming off of the Christmas season. We just received gifts and very kind things, cards from people. And how many of you have already been on eBay shopping for that thing you didn't get? You've got steep and cheap running in the background just in case a bargain comes up. There's sales now. We just came off Christmas. And how quickly are we already looking for that next thing? And I'm no different. I'm no different. We're not satisfied. Life comes at us in a way that is not satisfying. When we try to accumulate things to give us pleasure, it doesn't last. He goes on in verse 9 to say, what has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was already here. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. And I read this, this second section here. I have to stop and pause a little bit because we live in a pretty fascinating age where I think technology develops an awful lot. So this part gives me a little pause as I think about, is this really true? And I think about Steve Jobs and Apple 
and all of their innovations and the things that they have. Uh, personal computing, internet, iPod, iTunes, iPhone, iCloud, goes on and on. Uh, that's a lot of innovation. And there is something that seems new about these, these things until you consider that for the most part these are just new methods of doing the same old things. Uh, pretty much what we're trying to do here is simply take our music with us. It started with uh, a boombox. Remember the day? The big box up on the shoulder? Okay. Some of you had one and have lost your hearing in that ear because of it. Then we moved on to Walkmans, and then we moved on to Discmans, and then we moved on to MP3 players, and then we've moved on to smartphones. We're simply trying to take our music with us. New ways of doing the same old things, and I would submit that you can go back to the Psalms and you can find that the people of God, when they went to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem, as they walked a 13-mile road from Jericho to Jerusalem and they climbed the hills, they sang to each other the Psalms of Ascent. They took their music with them and they sang it to each other. And I would submit that the quality that they enjoyed was better than what you and I enjoy on our Bose headphones and a digital player because they could hear it from the person next to them. It's all been here before. New ways of doing the same old things. So he expresses some disappointment. We're not satisfied with things. We continue to try to innovate and create and come up with new ways of doing things. That's the, just the nature of us. And then he goes on to say, we're not remembered. Verse 11. There is no remembrance of men of old. Even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. And so Solomon's point becomes pretty clear. I don't need to expand on it too much here. And it leaves us with this question, what on earth are we doing here? <laughs> what are we doing here? And some of you are thinking, why on earth have you chosen Ecclesiastes in January, Eric? It's cold. It's dark. We need hope. We need help. Uh, this is just the start. I think the overwhelming message of the book of Ecclesiastes, as we get further and further into it, you're going to find is this, that life is short, life is difficult. That's just the way it is. It looks like this. So make the most of it. The fleeting nature of life should cause us to seize the moment and live in it well before God. It doesn't just drive us off to hedonism to wring every pleasure out of life possible. We have to do it with a conscience. We do it as before God. We do it with obedience for how he has instructed us to live. But it allows us, it causes us to, to impart a sacredness to the everyday, ordinary kinds of things because this moment is a gift from God. This very moment that we are here in this place, with each other, before God, with his word and his spirit and the hope of eternity, this moment is a gift from God. And we can stop and reflect upon that. And we can, we can take that kind of thinking further into our, the rest of our lives. Dads, when you get home from that long day, what seems to be so cyclical and disappointing, play with your kids. Wrestle with them. 
Get them to belly laugh because they're a gift from God. And very soon they'll be gone. Husbands, kiss your wife on the lips because she's a gift from God. And seize the opportunity to tell her and to show her that you love her. Ladies, when you prepare a meal for your family, take joy in the preparation. Not just thinking of it as a task to check off the list, family fed. Enjoy the process of what you're making. Do it prayerfully. Seeing it as a way to nourish your family, to show them your your tangible love and your care for them. Be prayerful and thankful about the food that God has given to you. It's a gift from God. When you're out hunting, you're glassing, and you're looking for a flash of horn in the brush somewhere, take a moment and put the glasses down and take in the whole scene and take in the grandeur that God has made and take that moment and be thankful and rejoice in it because it's a gift from God. When the sunrise comes up here in a little bit, (laughs) take a moment and look at it it appreciate it drink it in some are prettier than others but stop and take it it's a gift from god and so i think that the teacher here is going to show us again and again that life is transitory it's hard it's elusive it's not easy it's just the way it is it it's not something for us to harness or to control or to master or manipulate We simply can't do that. We cannot bend life to our will. That's just the way it is. But it is to be enjoyed as a gift from God. Let's pray. Father, I feel completely inadequate to speak about the message of this book. Uh, There are so many here in this room and around that have experienced so much more of life than I have. But I am grateful that one like Solomon, who experienced all of life, the good and the bad, uh, so many unique experiences that he had, he is in a position to teach us. God, I pray that I would just be a conduit to bring forward what Solomon has said, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the power that would imprint the truths on our lives. Father, help me and my brothers and sisters in Christ to have the courage to be honest about life as we find it, full of its disappointments and fully aware of its fleeting nature, and yet living in such a compelling and a winsome way, enjoying the goodness of life as we find it, and doing that as an act of worship before you. God, may other people be drawn to us and may they see that one man's description here that might cause us to despair also leads us to the gospel. And it shows us that there are answers to these questions in Christ and that this life is not all that there is, but there is a life to come that is infinitely more satisfying. Nevertheless, we thank you for the honesty of this book and we pray that we will be honest as we apply it to our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.